Whether it's for work or play, we rely on home internet so much these days. Being connected and staying connected has never been more important. So if you want reliable internet bought you at speed, switch to Aussie Broadband. It only takes a few minutes to sign up and their 100% Australian-based support team are ready to help. Aussie Broadband, the actual Aussie way. Find out more at aussiebroadband.com.au. T's and C's apply. Thousands of Aussies trust Aussie Broadband to keep them connected to the world, even when they're on the go. Because as well as reliable home internet, Aussie Broadband also offers flexible mobile plans with super generous data allowances and no locking contracts. Their 100% Australian-based support team are ready to help you make the switch. It only takes a few minutes. Aussie Broadband, the actual Aussie way. Search Aussie Broadband Mobile to find out more. T's and C's apply. G'day guys, welcome back to Dylan Friends. This week's guest on the show, Gary Jubelin. Gary worked for the New South Wales Police for over 34 years and is one of Australia's most well-known homicide detectives. He's led investigation into several high-profile murders and disappearances. Now, before we go any further, I need to mention that this episode is a little bit heavier than usual and contains conversations that some listeners may find confronting or triggering. So please, before you listen, have a think about if this episode is for you. Because the nature of Gary's work, we discuss some heinous crimes, missing persons, murder, including murder of young children. And Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are also advised this conversation mentions names of deceased persons. So everyone, be kind to yourself and please keep your own boundaries in mind before listening to this one. I wanted to get Gary on the show because I've always been super, super interested in this work. It's always been a field where I thought I would actually get into one day as a kid. I actually used to watch Blue Healers thinking that I was going to be like a cop and, and solve some inner city crime. As I said, Gary is one of the most well-known police officers in Australia. He's even had an underbelly crime series written about a case that he solved. And he's worked on some of the most infamous cases in Australia, like William Tyrrell and the Barrowville case. He also ran the crime scene following the Lint Cafe siege and investigated organised crime and gangs all over Australia. But he's definitely well-known for his work solving missing person cases. He unfortunately had to resign from the police force after allegations of misconduct had him removed from the William Tyrrell case after he's later found guilty of illegally recording conversations with a witness. And he explains how it all went down. One thing I love about Gary is it's not what happened to him, but it's how he's reacted to it, doing incredible things. He has a book called I Catch Killers. He's got one of the best podcasts in Australia called I Catch Killers. And if you're a true crime lover, he has one of the best podcasts going around where he interviews other people involved in police work, crime, that have been to jail, worked in gangs, everything under the sun. So make sure you check it out. It's unbelievable to take a look into the world that you don't really get to see. So please, again, make sure this episode's for you. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you to Gary so much for his time and let's go. Hi fam, it's Dylan's mum, Deborah. This is Dylan Friends. He's like, you can embarrass yourself. And I was like, bro, do you want me to do all seven verses? Bit arrogant. Didn't know all yeah. seven. <laughs> I've been in a bad team for 10 years and we got a chance to do something pretty special this year. All you can do is put your hand up and say you're wrong. Banter is a way that guys connect, a way that we can kind of play it safe with someone until we get to know them. I try to fix people sometimes. I'm like, Dan, stop doing that. Just listen. And you stack on top of that the habit of not taking your phone when you take your dog. It's easy. They had no other way to get out of the cave and we either turn our backs on them, in which case they're going to die, or we give this crazy idea a go. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Gary Jubelin, welcome to the podcast, my friend. Thanks very much. Is that all right? We're friends? Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll be friends. We'll see how we yeah. go today. <laughs> hey, it's an honour, pleasure, privilege to, to get you in. I was saying off air before, but I, I genuinely feel like I know you. I've listened to so much of your content over the past couple of years that it's uh, a bit of a fanboy today. 
Oh, well, that's, that's a, that uh, eases me in. That's very nice. I'm do, you, glad. do you get that a bit? Like with, you know, having a podcast, we're talking about it before as well, like imposter syndrome. You sometimes think, do people even listen to my show and, and how do they know me? How do they even enjoy this? It's a, it's a strange world. And I know you came from an environment that was was different, a sporting background. I, I was a police officer and uh, now working within this industry, it's a, it plays with your mind a little bit, doesn't it? And you, you feel like, a, I call it imposter syndrome. You think people are really interested. But uh, you get the uh, get the feedback and just comments from people, and that uh, yeah, that keeps you going. Give us a, a quick rundown for those who haven't heard about yeah. it. I know there'd be ninety nine percent that are listening that have. But if you haven't heard of I Catch Killers, what's what's the gist about? Okay, well, I, I spent thirty four years in the police, and uh, probably twenty five of those years I was uh, investigating homicides. So the the premise of the name I Catch Killers. Uh, I wrote a book called I Catch Killers, and then did a podcast, and it just uh, flowed on from there. Started off, um, it was with uh, News Corp that I was doing the uh, podcast with, and they were interested in, at one point in time, they were thinking that, like a, a murder case and work all the way way through it. And I said, well, how about I uh, interview some of my colleagues or ex-colleagues and uh, we'll give the listener a fly on the wall, two cops talking to each other. And that went off. That uh, The first season, people really uh, enjoyed that. But then... I realised that we had to expand on it. We couldn't have always the police version of it. Since I've been out of the police, I've been out of the police probably three years now. And I, I'm looking at life a little bit differently. So we broadened the scope of guests. And we've had uh, now, we've had uh, some some of the country's most notorious crooks on, mm. on the podcast. We've had victims, subject matter experts, and a whole range of people with interesting stories. And that's how the podcast uh, has sort of taken off yeah i must admit I, i've been listening from the start to now and my favorite ones are those ones where you're actually interviewing the other side of crime like you being a former detective interviewing a bikey yeah um and and having that chat for some reason like for the everyday person like myself there's just this fascination into what you do and what you see and how things are solved and i don't know what it is there's obviously a massive appetite for it because crime in general is one of the most listened to podcasts and People love just going yeah. on the inside to find out what actually happens in these worlds. Yeah, there, there's definitely a curiosity. And, uh, yeah, I, I think that's partly I enjoyed policing because it was mm. looking into a world that uh, if I didn't have the experience of a police officer, I uh, I wouldn't uh, wouldn't see into that world. And uh, there's some interesting characters it and uh, the way they live their life. And, yeah, some of the people I've had on the podcast, they're gangsters in the truest sense. And it's quite interesting getting their perspective on uh, yeah, the way that they look at things. What I've also become very much aware of is that, uh, and I, I think I was a little bit this way in the cops too. I, I think I had empathy, but my focus was on catching the bad guys so you didn't have too much time. You, you'd get assigned a case, you'd work that case, arrest someone hopefully, and then uh, move on to the next one. So you didn't really have time to think about why this person has committed crime. But uh, one of the guests I had on the podcast that really opened my eyes, and I, I think he also vouched for me, so it opened the doors to speaking to other people from the other side, the, the bad guys, Bernie Matthews. And uh, he was uh, one of uh, the states, if not the country's uh, most notorious criminals at one stage mm -hmm. in his life. He escaped from Long Bay Prison. And he was um, in Grafton Prison, which is northern New South Wales. Where it was brutalised, it was, you know, and this is all public record, it was floggings when uh, the prisoners oh. came in. Sitting down and speaking to him really opened my eyes and we became quite 
uh, friendly. He was also a, a journalist, an award-winning uh, journalist. So he was helping me and advising me on uh, journalism. And we would often sit opposite each other and just laugh how we how we became friends. Sadly, he passed away uh, recently. But uh, yeah, I became very close to him, and that sort of opened my eyes to a lot of things. Unbelievable. There's so many similarities, isn't there? Like it's just either side of the white yeah. line of what it is. You're both successful. You're both chasing, but it's just different things. Well, what it, it is, and it, it, it's funny. It's he lived by a code. I lived by a code. Now I respected him for living by his code. Like he, he didn't give anyone up, and he he was a tough guy. I don't necessarily agree with his code, but I respect him for living by that code. And I'd like to think as a as a, a copper, that's why I I live by a code. And uh, yeah, the bad guys mightn't agree with the code, but that's a, the code. And I, I hope yeah, there's some respect given either way. I certainly think it was the case with Bernie that there was mutual respect. Okay, well, there's an episode, Bernie. Check that one out. My two favourites were the ex bikey Cuno, which was referred yeah. to before. Another one that really admires was a crazy story was Khalid Baker, the boxer, with yeah. wrongfully um, convicted for a crime. I think it was ten years he served in. In prison, yeah, thir- thirteen, 13. Years. Yeah, no, um, Caleb Baker. That's uh, his murder conviction. I, I know he's he's still still trying to overturn it. Yeah. And uh, I looked at it from a homicide uh, point of view, or just separate to my dealings with uh, Caleb. And I thought it was a uh, strange com- conviction um, in that it was a just in a general uh, in a basic sense it was a party where there was a brawl and someone fell out a window and uh, there was a couple of things about that that caused me concern but what I found interesting about Caleb was that uh, he wasn't bitter and I, I found that really inspiring that he's gone to jail now rightly or wrongly he was probably being a dickhead at that stage but to go to jail for for murder I think that was extreme. Now, he could have come out very angry, and mm. he's certainly not. I was actually in contact with him last week. He had a fight uh, a fight up in Sydney and, and won the fight, but that was a bit of fun. I interviewed him, and part of the uh, thing was, yeah, I'll sit down and do a podcast, but you jump in the ring and spar me. So we, we <laughs> mic'd me up, and, uh, yeah, it was. Uh, he let me know that was his domain, which was fair enough, And uh, but it was a bit of fun. So I think I there's one it. thing there that's evident in, in his story, your story, um, which hopefully we'll, we'll touch on today, but it's it's that saying that I love um, using. It's not what happens; it's how you react to it. And I think that yeah. without going, that's a a lot in your story, which we'll yeah. get to later. But let's go back to the start. Oh, can I can I just because yeah, you mentioned uh, mentioned Cano as well, and uh, he's a really a, a person. He's another person I've got respect for, and yeah. uh, definitely, uh, yeah, he was on the other side of the the divide between the good guys and the bad guys. And uh, yeah, when I, I I first met him, that he was talking about uh, yeah. I'm a gangster. I don't have a job. You know, I'm an outlaw. Like, what do you mean? Have a job or, you know, have a driver's license or that. I, I don't do that shit. That's that's for the straighties. And he turned his life around. And uh, I, I'm really proud of the, the person he's turned into now. That, uh, you know, and, and we had a funny conversation where he uh, contacted me and said, oh, thanks, mate. And we have got a friendship now. There's no, no denying it. And uh, what for? And he said, it's not that bad being a citizen. <laughs> and... He's gone. I'm paying taxes. I've yeah. got a job and and all that. So really cool. And that that's that. The stories of redemption just they rock me. Yeah. Like I, I really re- admire people that can come through adversity or make a decision to turn their life around. I think it's really impressive. One hundred percent. And I think no matter if you're a crook or you know tax paying, we all hate paying tax. So <laughs> yeah. I, you might still be a bit shifty there. We'll have to look into that. Um, I'd love to talk about your story today from the okay. start. Um, what we like growing up as a kid. Join the police force. Was that always yeah. a dream or did something yeah. just sort of transpire that ticked you into it? 
Uh, it wasn't uh, wasn't a, uh, a dream at all. It, it's, I didn't come from a police family, and it wasn't you know, where I, I was drifting to. If, if anything, if I had to describe myself, I, I think I was more. Yeah, you know, I laugh when I say long haired surfy hippie, <laughs> given my current hairstyle. But um, yeah, that that was my thing. It was just about having fun, like like young young people. You you not don't take life too seriously. I, I worked in the building industry, um, but my work was more just get the work out of the way so I could have fun on the weekends and mm. you know, go away surfing, playing sport or, or whatever. Um, I was on a building site, so it wasn't any noble reason or you know, to serve society and do good for the world that I joined the cops. I'd been in a ceiling, and it was a particularly hot day working <laughs> as an electrician, and I got out, and I'm having lunch in a park, and I it was hot, I was itchy, and because uh, you get itchy with all the dust in, in the ceiling, and uh, I saw two cops chasing a bad guy down the road. I looked and I thought, that looks all right. That looks like a bit of fun. Um, I applied the next day and uh, got in the in the cops probably uh, six months after that. Oh my god, it's, it's a it's a funny how fortuitous things happen in person that can spark things. Am I wrong to say as well? And I, I might have done a little bit of research off right, there on yeah. this, but earlier before that, there could have been a time where this was never going to be on your cards. It, it might have even gone either way. We sort of yeah. getting caught up in the wrong crowds as a kid, like a lot of us do. Yeah, yeah, and and yeah. I always there was something that uh, I was drawn to the excitement and and I had a lot of friends and I think that helped me in policing too like a lot of friends that went in the wrong wrong direction but I could communicate with them and understand um, understand where they're coming from and uh, I had a uh, a pretty tough father and uh, yeah the old adage of uh, tough love I think it worked well for me because I I went off the rails in every way you could as a kid and uh, the consequences were extreme when my father found out. And uh, so looking back, I'm thankful that he kept me on that straight and narrow. And, and people I was hanging around with that he was trying to pull me away from um, went down a path completely different and uh, had done some time inside and, and different things. So, yeah, yeah it could have gone, gone either way. And, uh, yeah, I just like people that are true to themselves. Now, it, it's funny from an ex-cop point of view saying I can respect criminals, but I don't like hypocrisy. And I like people that put their hand up and say, hey, this is who I am and this is what I, what I do. And uh, so, yeah. Do you join the cops? How long are you in the police force now? Because I know it's two years now you have to serve as a serving officer yeah. to then become, you know, go into a different uh, yeah. force. Is that similar to Yeah, that? so I started off in uniform for two years, which was in New South Wales Police. And I think in most police there's, there's a minimum, whether it's two or, two or three years that you spend in uniform, which I 100% agree with because, um, yeah, you learn a lot from those, those times in, in uniform and just how to talk to people. And surprisingly, just how to deal with the power. Now, this is you know, one, one thing, and I explain this to people. When I joined the cops, you go down the academy, you're, you're in the academy for six months or whatever, then they, they release you into the world. You've got a police uniform, you've got a gun. And I remember the first day that I walked outside in a, a um, uniform, I was a Pacific Highway, a, a busy road in Sydney, and there was a break in the traffic, so I just decided to walk through the break in the traffic, and all the cars jammed on their brakes because a police officer had walked out on the road, and that I, I think that just gives you the indication of the power power that you got, and it comes at a young age when you join the join the police early. But I, I spent uh, two years in uniform, loved it. But then uh, someone in the detective's office saw something that uh, they thought that uh, yeah. That might be a, a career path for me and uh, gave me a tap on the shoulder and I went into uh, plain clothes and uh, 
I loved that uh, work. I was doing uh, doing some tactical policing, and a lot of my career I have done tactical policing throughout my career. But once I got a taste of being a detective, and uh, that's the path I went down. I got into major crime and got into homicide, and then you know that that became a passion. But uh, what I liked about detectives was. And I, I remember when I was in uniform one time, I think it was a murder or it was a, a serious assault or sexu- sexual assault, and there was a crime scene set up and all the tape was uh, around the crime scene. And my job as a, a uniform officer was to protect the crime scene and keep people out or record people that go in. And then these uh, cool dudes turn up, the detectives, and they had all this swagger about them and go under the tape and come out. And they, they did have swagger, and they were probably dickheads, I don't, I don't know, but they looked cool. <laughs> and they uh, they came out, and I thought, I wouldn't mind a piece of that. And then uh, shortly after, I got the offer and uh, sort of t- took it up. Well, what is the role of a detective? Okay, a, a detective has uh, yeah, first responders uniform. So if a, if a crime happens, you call police. It's not the detectives that roll up, it's the uniform police that roll up. Pending the type of crime, if it's a complicated crime, a serious crime, detectives will get called out. So we don't, as detectives generally, we, we do in, in cases of emergencies, but don't have to respond to the, the general calls for police. So as a detective, we come out and the case is handed over to us. So your early days as a detective is on the you know, sort of general minor level crime, mm-hmm. break and enters, um, minor assaults, um, you know, some drug matters, that type of thing. That's where you learn your your skills, and then gradually it develops into uh, yeah um, more significant. It might be serious sexual assaults, um, professional thieves, and uh, and uh, things like that. And then you you go down that path. What were for you like early learnings? I can imagine coming into that new world. It's like yeah. you're starting a whole new sort of job again. Yeah. You've gone from plain clothes to you know wearing the suits. You're starting yep. to develop that swagger. Yeah. Is there any sort of cases or learnings early days from joining the detectives that you look back now and go, shit, that was a valuable learning? Yeah, there was one, um, uh, pay homage to uh, one of my early partners, Jim Williams, who was a great detective. And he had this ability just to communicate with people. Um, great in the interview room. I, I'd, I'd sit in some interviews where he's talking to the suspect and uh, I'd just be sitting there listening and I'd end up confessing. He was so compelling in the way that he could communicate. Now, it wasn't threats. It was just finding a connection with people and extracting information from them. And I was amazed by that. Other things in detectives, the thoroughness of it, like people see, you see the TV detective and, you know, the case goes for an hour and, you know, we're making dramatic arrests. But you've got to be methodical and paperwork and the detail, the paperwork, statements. So it's not for everyone. And some people, I've got utmost respect for the for the uniform cops that are out at the, the sharp end of policing the, mm. the whole time. It's not for everyone, but it's very rewarding. So you basically take the case from the start to the finish and you see it through court. As a detective, probably the most terrifying thing was the amount of court time you did. And I got beat up in the witness box so so many times. And uh, one, and I, I think it was pretty funny, but it was a good learning learning curve. And this was a, an older detective looking out for me. We had a matter coming up. It was only a break and enter or, or whatever. And I'd prepared, but this, my partner at the time, it was Jim, he didn't seem particularly interested. And he sort of lulled me into a false sense of security and said, no, it'll be right. It'll be right. Don't worry about it. You'll, get it. You'll be in and out in 10 minutes. I got in the witness box. Every question I didn't want to be asked was asked. I was just carved up. I was just... After that, I wore a white shirt because I had a blue shirt and had all these unsightly sweat stains. 
and got out of the witness box and I was just going, oh, maybe I, I, this is not for me. And Jim pulled me aside and said, I want you to meet a friend of mine. It was a defence uh, solicitor. Jim had tipped him into all different uh, questions to ask me just to see how I would handle the pressure in the witness box. Oh, like he yeah, basically set yeah. me up. But it was a good lesson. And he said, now, the lesson that you've learnt here is you make sure you prepare every time you go in the witness box. If you don't, that can happen. And make sure everything is, is done and done properly. And it was a good lesson. I didn't thank him at the time. I thought, you prick. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it taught me that uh, the importance of preparation. So from that point in time, I never went into the witness box of the court matter without being prepared. And I'd get nervous. Yeah, And yeah, I still get nervous. I still, there's, there's matters where I still have to give evidence. I still get uh, get nervous before going in, but it's like anything, like your sport, preparation. If you if you know you're prepared, you go in with that little bit more confidence. Mm. So you, you were alluding to before about being a detective, that meticulousness of just having to have everything documented yep. and going through the case. Because I think as a fan of you know listening to crime stories and you feel like you're a part of these journeys sometimes yeah, yeah. and you sort of go, fuck, like, we know this person has done it, yeah. but how do we prove it? Yeah. And there's the part where... I suppose it's like detective, you you can solve a case, but yeah. then proving it's another point. What, what, yeah, one one hundred percent. Like there's there's plenty of cases, and you know some of them are murder cases. There, there's others that are, are not as serious, where, where I know who's done it, but I can't prove it. And yeah, the the it's one thing to say you know who's done it, but you've got to be able to present the evidence that um, gets them convicted at court. And it's frustrating, especially when I was a young detective and, you know, you're a bit of a hothead, oh, stuff, this, this is outrageous. You realise that this is a system. You've got to play within the system. You can't win them all. But I would always uh, work on the basis as long as I did everything I possibly could, I was comfortable with, with it. So it wasn't sort of accepting failure. And, like, one thing I, I can say about my career, I, I never gave up. Like, I, I worked cases for... 10, 20 years and you know, still working on them at the time that uh, I was, uh, you know, stopped being a police officer. Um, so I, I don't give up and I play the long game. So mm. No, that you do and we'll definitely get into that today. Yep. The, the other part as well that is something of a crime nuffy that is always a question that I had is, is it true around this whole sense of 48 hours in a case? Like, as soon as you take over a case, the first 48 hours is the most important to develop as much evidence yeah. and knowledge around that case as possible. Yeah, I, I think it. I think the forty-eight hour rule is is pretty true. Um, I always like you're never got enough resources as a homicide detective, and I worked as a homicide uh, detective as a senior constable, a sergeant, an inspector, chief inspector, the whole range of uh, homicide investigations. And you didn't when I was in the management level. Quite often you didn't have resources, and I'd be arguing when I was at sergeant level leading investigations, but. If I had to put the resources where they count, it's the initial response. If you if you set up an investigation in the right direction in those first 48 hours, it holds you in a good uh, good place to be able to solve that crime, because that's where mistakes are uncovered. Um, and if and what I'm talking about in that first 48 hours, we hit a crime scene. If there's a murder, I get called out because throughout my career you're on call every six weeks, so you go anywhere in the state if there's a murder. You get called out, you make sure the crime scene's done properly because if you miss stuff there, um, whether it's um, you know DNA evidence, fingerprints or any forensic material, you might have, uh, someone literally might get away with murder. So you focus on that, you find out about the victim. So 
who was a victim round, who was the person you last spoke to, that type of thing. That often gives you gives you the breakthrough. You canvas the area. Did someone hear or see something? And it's in that first 48 hours while it's fresh in everyone's mind, that's when you can really point an investigation in the right direction. Mm. So it is crucial. And, yeah, with all the homicides that I've done, when you get called out, like sometimes as a homicide detective, we'd get called out and uh, we call them the smoking gun uh, scenario in that... Uh, it's fairly obvious who's done it and it's only just going to be a matter of time before the evidence is gathered to um, put that person away. So we don't stay on those ones. We stay, homicide tend to stay on the more complex ones. And uh, I also worked in unsolved homicide and I've done a lot of reinvestigations and my frustration is when the initial investigation hasn't been done properly, it makes that reinvestigation that much harder. So is that like referring to like a cold case? Is that yeah, 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 working on uh, on cold cases. Incredible. Um, before we get into some of the cases you've worked on, like yeah. we, we're speaking today about you know homicide and murder, and we sort of you forget that this is actually something that's happened. Like yeah. you going to these crime scenes and dealing with this every day, how do you separate yourself from this? Like I can imagine you you're talking about some pretty complex and yeah gruesome issues that are happening. Yeah, do you get it, accustomed to it. Do you, like, is you, there ever, you, yeah. you get conditioned to it, and I, I think it's like, and I, I use the analogy of sport that uh, we understand that. Yeah, you, your first game in the season, how sore you are because <laughs> the knocks. But as the season goes on, you get conditioned to the knocks. You get your body conditioned to it. So as a homicide detective, I got conditioned to not sleeping for forty hours or, or whatever when you get called out, confronting something horrible. Um, so you, you you became it was your the chaos was your norm if that makes sense mm. and so I, I, I was comfortable in in that environment from the emotional point of view my role as a homicide detective was to make sure first and foremost I did my job and my job was to catch catch the killer I didn't allow myself the emotional you know release at the scene or while I was, I was working when I get home sometimes you dwell on it what you've seen or the the emotional side of it um, so that play, plays a toll. I think each person deals with it differently. Like I, I was, I won't say resilient, but I, I had a quick bounce back. I kept myself fit, and I think that helped. So you know, I, I had had a release that I yeah. could do when I, I was under under the pump. But uh, yeah, it's it's the cases stay with you, but that that's okay. I, I don't mind that. Like each case takes a little little piece out of you, but uh, that's all right if you prepared to pay pay the price and uh so that that's the way that uh i would approach it throw myself into it people have said I, i've been criticized in my career for being too passionate and that's just lazy pricks that say that um and i i, I say that and i'm looking you straight in the face that's just an excuse if you're going to be investigating homicide it's not a nine to five job yeah you, you gotta throw off. you throw yourself into it uh head first and you live it and breathe it and if not find another place to work and uh, i i honestly mean that because i've had too many people naysayers say oh he's too passionate but what's more important than investigating who killed someone so yeah Mm. and it's passion with perspective too that's um yeah i've had people that passion passionate but they they lose a little bit of perspective. So I'm always mindful of that, that the passion comes with perspective. So I won't bang my head against a brick wall if it's pointless. But if I think there's a chance, I'll just keep pushing and pushing and uh, try and uh, try and solve the matter. Yeah, love it. I, I totally agree. You're yeah. Dealing with lives and families yeah. And, yeah. and loved ones that are 
have yeah. uh, have got to work it out as well. Um, some of the, the the notable cases that I'm I'm sure that that passion yep. came into full fruition with is um, there's probably there's a lot there's mm. there's a few there but some of the notable ones that you've really worked with the Bowerville is a Bowerville Bowerville yeah. case yeah um, can you talk us through that one yeah a Bowerville case um it, it not it changed me as a police officer but it um, also changed me as a person I think I I became involved in that 25 years ago. 30 year, years ago, three Aboriginal kids, Colin Walker, Evelyn Greenup and Clinton Speedy, they lived in the same street. They were all known to each other and they disappeared And uh, over a five-month period. Um, Colleen Walker, was the first, she was 16 years old. Uh, her clothing that she was wearing at the time of her disappearance was found weighted down with rocks at the end of this road called the Congarini Road, about five kilometres away from where she disappeared. And then uh, Evelyn Greenup, a four-year-old girl, disappeared th- oh, three and a half weeks later. Her um, body was just discarded, dumped like garbage on the side of a, a dirt road, the Congarini Road, again, a similar location, with a puncture wound to her head. And then Clinton Speedy, who disappeared three months later, his body was found, dumped along the Congarini Road, discarded like Evelyn's body was, with a puncture wound to the head. So you've got these three crimes, and because they were Aboriginal, the response was in, inadequate. Now, when I say that, you know, oh, we're talking racism. Yeah, we're talking talking racism. Mm-hmm. Um, there was sort of an unconscious bias. They didn't get the response that should have been provided to anyone else. They were victims in this uh, situation. A serial killer was operating in the town, and uh, the response was um, inadequate. A person was charged, but he was acquitted, and I, I won't won't say his name because he has has been acquitted. I became involved five or six years after the um, murders, when uh, the um, Aboriginal community at Barrowville protested, and um, the commissioner of police went up there, heard their concerns, and uh, set up a reinvestigation. So that was uh, 25 years ago, and uh, I've been working with the family since. They haven't got. Uh, they still haven't got justice, but they've done some amazing things in that time where they managed to get legislation overturned, um, the double jeopardy legislation, which is enshrined in English law for the past 800 years. That's about if someone's been acquitted of a crime, they can't be retried. Now, a person had been charged with the murder of Clinton Speedy. It went to trial and he was acquitted. He'd been charged with the murder of Evelyn Greenup. It went to trial and he'd been acquitted. After the Evelyn Greenup trial, that's when I was working on it in 2006, the family said, family said to me in this really emotional meeting after the, the trial and there wasn't a dry eye in the place and said, well, what can we do? And I said, look, there's not a lot we can do because if someone's been acquitted, we can't retry them. So we're, we're sort of stuffed. And they said, well, and I, as a flippant comment, I said, if you could change the double jeopardy legislation. Then those families started marching on parliament yeah. I, I marched with them on on parliament which probably didn't endear me to the uh, to the police but they have been campaigning and pushing um since that time and uh, they recently when i say recently a year or so ago lost a, uh, an appeal at the high court um to get the person ex officio indicted so he'd stand trial for the three murders but the thing about that case is that if it was three white kids living in sydney and I know this. I, I can say this because I'm, I'm being part of the organisation in police. The response would have been completely different. It wasn't because they were Aboriginal people. People didn't relate to it. The families told me it was because they were black and no one cared. 
when they first told me that when I went up in 97, I, I didn't believe them. But now, yeah, I know they were 100% right. And I think it's a real uh, real shame on... Oh, shame's probably too soft a word, but yeah. uh, someone's got a way of murdering three kids and uh, we've failed failed the victims. And there's been a parliamentary inquiry. I gave evidence at the parliamentary inquiry and the families are still campaigning just last week. They put posters up around the Barrowville um, township with pictures of the kids and say their names, and their names matter. And uh, say Colin Walker, Evelyn Greenup, and Clinton Speedy. If, if anyone hasn't heard about it, yeah. I invite them to have a, have a look at it, and you'll be shocked. It, it's it seems to be like something from the South in America from the 60s, but this was happening in uh, yeah in our time, our our generation, and uh, it's shameful that uh, someone's got away with it. When I was removed from the police, I was still working on it. And, uh, yeah, I, I hope uh, people within the police are still pushing. I think that the, the sad part about this too is that this isn't a, a one-off story as well. This has probably happened all over Australia. 100%. And, though I, like, because of my work with Bowerville, I've, I've been brought into other investigations involving, um, yeah, Indigenous uh, victims. And uh, it is. They, they get treated differently and it, it's wrong. It, it shouldn't. And sometimes people and it's not just the police I'm blaming here you know society should be outraged three kids three mm. kids murdered the media should be outraged but uh, it's almost like we can't relate because they're a marginalized group of people um, you know economically disadvantaged they haven't got money or, or powerful people in their corner but that's not how a system should work they're victims the the system should look after the victims and sadly and what I've, I've seen with Barrable is that um Unless they complain, unless they stir something up, nothing nothing happens. But um, yeah, working on it for 25 years, I've got more from the community than they've got from me. Like the the respect I've been given from the the community, and the, I, yeah, they're like family to me now. And uh, I've got no regrets what I, what I I did with uh, the Barrowville people, and I'll keep fighting for for them as long as I can because I think it's outrageous what yeah. happened. And I think that hopefully we can keep this in the public eye and, and keep talking about the case to, to bring more awareness to it. Yeah, m- m- most definitely. And look, I'm saying there's still a possibility that these crimes could be solved. Yeah. But if, if they're not solved, it's important that their story's not forgotten. And there was one um, Aboriginal elder, Elaine Walker, who um, became a really close friend of mine and sadly she passed away. But... When I first met her, I came up and I had the swagger of a you know, big city homicide detective coming into a country town thinking, yeah, what have I got to learn? And she just gave it to me. She wow. said, you're a cop, you're a white man, you have no idea. And she just growled at me and she was terrified. But we became really good friends and uh, she took me under a wing and, and started to teach me how to work within that community, how to get information from the community, how, you know, just subtle things, but things that make a big, uh, big difference. And, uh, yeah, she'd say, you've got a lot to learn, white boy. And uh, she, she taught me so much. And uh, sadly, when she passed away, and when I say sadly, it's probably one of the most, yeah, treasured memories I've got from, from policing is that uh, at her funeral, her family uh, asked me to help, um, you know, bury the coffin oh, yeah. and throw dirt on the coffin. And I, I think, yeah. It just it, it makes me sad thinking about that she never saw justice, but she would always say to me, um, justice comes in many ways. And I think what she was trying to tell me was make sure this story is not, not forgotten cool, yeah. so it doesn't happen again. 
Yeah, so. unbelievable. And you're definitely doing that, and hopefully today it can spark on a few more people to, to get around. I know yeah. there's a couple of podcasts you've done one on it, and there's actually a series on it too that I've, I've listened yeah. to, yeah. Um, which will have the, the name in, in the show notes. Um, another sort of po- uh, story that is bringing you to light as well, and you actually featured in an underbelly mm. series from this, is uh, Badness. Yeah. So Anthony yeah. Perk- uh, Anthony Parrish and yeah. Terry Falconer. Yeah, yeah, that, that, was a, that was an interesting one. That was... Um, 2001 Terry Falconer was a uh, prisoner he was on day release and he was uh, working in a smash repair place released from prison during the day because this was before he was going to be released full time to work and then he had to come back to prison at night had an ankle bracelet on and uh, all that three people turned up dressed as police officers uh, two as detectives one in uniform um had guns, uh, identification, introduced themselves, spoke to him, arrested him, handcuffed him and took him away. And people just thought, oh, well, it's another crime that Terry might have been involved in. That was the last time he was seen alive and his body turned up um, 10 days later, cut up into seven bags and dumped in the Hastings River up at Port Macquarie. And I became involved then. I got called out and led led that investigation. That investigation took... it was ten years, I think, start start to finish, but it became one of the biggest um, murder investigations in the country because it ended up that I was overseeing eight murder investigations. Um, it was organised crime. We ended up, uh, yeah, cat. We we caught. I think we ended up charging uh, 14, 14 people with over a hundred offences, and every offence that we charged them with, we got up on, which was, yeah, really powerful. But. Yeah, that was that was chaotic, and uh, when the underbelly riders, they spoke to senior police, and they sort of pointed pointed towards this investigation, and they uh, they spoke to me and said, uh, "Look, we want to do a series on. Uh, we've done, you know, the Melbourne one focusing on the bad guys. I think they did the one with the corruption in Kings Cross, and we want to show that police can bounce back, and so that's how they sort of came to, came to this job." But it was a weird experience. Yeah. Like I had riders following me, following me around for years, and uh, the the amount of details it surprised me. And it's sort of the first you know time I've got an understanding of what goes into into these shows. But uh, it was sort of a surreal experience. The riders spoke to me and said, "Look, we want to um, have you as a main character." And uh, we want to delve into your personal life. What's your personal life like? And I go, <laughs> sort of roll my eyes and go, well, I've I've had a divorce. I had a relationship with uh, someone uh, someone at work, and I'm now seeing a uh, Aboriginal psychologist that I met at a murder trial, and they've gone perfect. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and they've gone. Oh, we don't need to add anything to it. So then, watching your personal life play out, yeah, you know, underbelly was a really popular show. It was yeah. one of the biggest ones in the in the country and I remember when it uh when it came out that uh friends and family would say do we'll come around and watch it with you and I said no no I'll watch it on my own and I think I, I was watching it and as you're watching your private life play out and everything else it's quite quite confronting and uh, I think I was in the fetal position sucking my thumb at one stage just going oh no but look it's, it's an experience that um I and people, it, it's funny, and I, I think it, it sort of shaped my career in that what happened, because you stick your head up that high, and that was the first time a serving police officer had had a series made where he's featuring heavily, and it's not you know in the past it was 
happening yeah. virtually in, in real time. And I know that put a target on my back um, within my own organisation. It's funny because the people that I respect, they're the ones that are going, oh, that's great. Because there could have been 100 cops that they did the show on. It just happened to happened to be my one. But there was some, uh, yeah, I, I'd say petty jealousies that uh, come from there. And also at the target, I found that I, I got um, a harder time in the witness box because I think barristers wanted to make a name for themselves beating up the bloke that was on underbelly. But um, I, I'm really proud of the investigation. It was organised crime at the extreme, and the pressure was, you know, the pressure was very, very real. And uh, there was a period of time, I think, there was about two years where, so it was ten years, and we worked on it. Then I got onto other cases, and we had, you know, you don't. When I say I work on a case for ten years, you've got other cases that you're working mm. on. So there was a. a, a theme running through the um, running through the investigations then we got a bit of a breakthrough we were using a lot of informants and then the pressure was on like it was a game of cat and mouse they didn't know we were looking for, looking at them we had lulled them into a false sense of security because they'd got away so so long and then uh, then we had to had to strike and it was dramatic there was an arrest at gunpoint when we took out uh, Anthony Parrish and another person by the name of Sean Waygood uh, Sean's deceased now. Um, he was a, a contract killer, and uh, mm. so it, it was heavy. And uh, they were making life and death decisions. I was working with a good team. Everyone was everyone was under under the pump, and uh, we're we're really proud of what we achieved. So, with the underbelly thing, like I, I laugh when people go, "Oh, I wouldn't have done it if if it was me." I say bullshit. <laughs> you know, if someone we're going to make a TV series about you, it, what you you don't think you'd be interested in it? Like it was fun, and uh, the police were funny. They got like they are the ones that that put underbelly on to me. Mm. So they were condoning it. I was the one that said, "Look, I feel funny with people walking around when I'm at work. I'll do it in my own time, like speaking to writers and, and that." And then it got closer to the time, and the police have. Uh, realised that there's going to be a lot of focus on, on myself and they directed me that I'm not to speak to the riders anymore. This is two years down the track. And I, I've said, but I've given them all my personal details with your sanction and they're going to a TV series and you want me not to be involved in it. So I, I abided by what they said and just explained to the riders, look, the police have got cold feet on it. Anyway, you got all the information. But then they um, they asked me to um, I forget the name of the terminology, but the a, a reading, the first reading, and the uh, underbelly uh, producers rang me up and said, "Look, no, you're not. We we can't deal with you directly anymore. But we're doing the first reading of the um, TV series, and that's when all the actors sit round and read out the first couple of episodes in a room. Would you like to come along?" I said, "Ah, oh, no, I can't." And I thought, stuff that. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to come along. Like, who, who am I kidding? It's in my own time. I'm going to come along. And I walked in there and there's all these actors and I was intimidated and sort of sitting there. But by the end of the night, I was becoming, I think, a little bit obnoxious because I'm start looking at the actors going, no, look, if you're playing him, you need to more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all of that. So I'm, I'm pushing pushing that. But uh, I, I made uh, yeah, made a good friend out of it with Matt Nable. He he. He played me, and we stay in contact and catch up a fair bit. And it, it's funny; I, I see what the skills that actors actors have because he can play me better than I can play play myself. And uh, but we have have a lot of fun, so it was an experience. Yeah, mm. yeah, he's a good actor. He's actually in a, a series that I was watching recently uh, about an, another Australian. 
Oh, God, it's forsaking me. I'll put it in the show notes. But yeah. um, he's in another Australian crime. Yeah, he, he's uh, he's a great story. actor. He's he's got a, a yeah. He's done some great work. Yeah. Really talented fella. That um, part you alluded before, I don't want to brush over because I can imagine yeah. this being something really big. As you said, you're in the police force. It's typically a career where it's do your work, keep your head yeah. down, keep a low profile because you're obviously working on these massive cases, and mm. you know you don't want to be too big bigger than yeah. the, the thing itself. But when this series comes along, the police force puts you into it, and you do. You know, you're working on these massive cases. Yeah. You're becoming one of the most well-known detectives in the yeah. country. Yeah. How was that with the other police officers and the superior officers above you? Did you find that it did get really hard? I look the the police that I respected. They didn't uh, didn't worry them at all. Like the ones that were the hard workers didn't worry them at all because they know. Yeah, they know the work I did in the first place. But they could. Be, it could have been them. Yeah, we're just mm. doing our work. That, that's our job. And the, if you work long enough and hard enough, that like I did, the, my public profile was because I was doing some hard investigations. Like there's hundreds of investigations I've done that no one knows about because there wasn't no need for the media. But some of the ones, Bowerville, I used the media because no one cared about it. Yep. With the uh, and, and this is an interesting point, with the underbelly one, Strike Force Juno, I worked on that for 10 years. No one knew about it. No one knew about it until we started making the arrests and it was the arrests in the biggest murder investigation in, in the country. So it wasn't like I was covered in the media. I could get get about and do my work. The William Tyrrell one that I'm, I'm sure we'll talk on, that, that sort of thrust me in the, in the spotlight um, because everyone's interested in it. But, um, yeah, I uh, definitely, definitely played a part in my career and it gave me an informal power, um, uh, an informal power that because I was well known that I think it, it intimidated certain bosses mm. and like when I say this and I, I choose my words carefully because it sounds egotistical oh they were just jealous because that's an easy cop out you could be a dickhead and you just write it off oh they're just jealous but also all that I was doing was doing my job and I wasn't critical of the police I thought I was a positive advocate for, for the police but yeah, some of the things that happened to me in my career, I have absolutely no doubt it was because of the, the profile I had. But what they didn't understand, pl senior police didn't understand, I certainly understood it because when I was a young detective, you had detectives that were identified as the lead detectives in, in the place. That that was, you know, it was recognised. You'd see, and this is even before I'm in the cops, but you see the head of someone coming in and you go, oh, this must be serious, they got that bloke on it. I used it for good as yeah, I, I'd like to think I used it for good because when I wanted things done like the barrel stuff or things I did with the Leveson I carried some clout and what they didn't also understand I could use it against the crooks mm. because if I was investigating a crime and I'm knocking on the door I can see the look on their face going oh shit this is serious I could use that and when I'm, I'm speaking to them I, I could use it and uh, yeah I I the way the the way the police and the media at the moment, you don't see lead detectives talking much anymore, do you? And there was some uh, some down in uh, Victoria, Ron Idles and uh, you know pe people like that, and Charlie Bazina. They were people that I looked up to, and I hadn't worked with them. I know them now, but I was looking up to them. And whenever I saw their faces on leading the investigation, I'm thinking, serious. Yeah, it, it's serious. So, yeah, it, it's. If I had the opportunity again, I'd still do the same thing. I'm, I'm not going to um, pull back on it. And uh, I, it was a, a double-edged sword, the underbelly thing. But 
and some of the cases I worked on, but that's the nature of, nature of the business. The William Till case, you touched on it yep. before. What's your recollection of this case and, and still to this day is, is something that's still going on? Yeah, well, just to explain my involvement yep. in William's case, and William is a three-year-old kid, that uh, a young boy that disappeared in the Spider-Man suit at Kendall on the mid-north coast of New South Wales. I took over that investigation five months after it started and I led the investigation for four years. When I say lead the investigation, I made every decision on, on what direction the investigation's going on, who we would pursue, who the suspects were, with a team, well, like working with a team. And when I say I, when I'm talking major crime, it's always a, a team environment. But uh, you know, at the point where you're the leader, you can take all the information in, but you're going to make the, make the decision. That's the, also the investigation where I um, got allegations against me uh, from the police, and I, I'm happy to talk about them, they're mm. public, public record. But uh, the allegations were that I recorded um, four conversations on my telephone, you know, really serious shit. <laughs> and uh, I recorded those conversations when I'm speaking to a, a person about the William Tyrrell matter. There was listening devices in that person's place, which was authorised by... Supreme Court judge. The reason why I recorded the conversations was to protect my own lawful interests. Now, that was my interpretation of the Listening Devices Act. There's a lot of very experienced legal people that agree with my interpretation, but the courts have found me guilty of those those four charges. So that's why I'm here doing a podcast. I'm not, not in the police any, anymore. But uh, I have no regrets doing it. I was going in to speak to a suspect on my own, which is not the norm but it was a strategy that was deemed appropriate um, in the circumstances. And I consulted with a senior forensic psychologist and, yep, to get that rapport happening mm. if you go in on your own. So it was going to be a fairly intense conversation and I was worried that there would be um, allegations made against me. That's why I recorded the conversations. I didn't hide the fact that I recorded the conversations. People, everyone on the strike force knew I'd recorded the conversations. And lo and behold, 12 months later, they, they come at me and um, make it out that um, I've committed this criminal criminal offence. That's how I left the William Tyrrell investigation. On the William Tyrrell investigation, I think the focus needs to be on the fact that a three-year-old kid has disappeared in a, a um, dead-end street in a country country town. I think that we should, as police, be judged by our response to that. I don't think it's helpful that there's been all this internal turmoil, with myself included, in, involved in it, but I, I would hope that the focus could be on, on William's disappearance. What saddens me, the fact that I ran the investigation for four years and when the allegations were put to me, I was removed from the investigation immediately, not allowed to do any formal handover whatsoever. Now, in anyone's world, that just doesn't seem right. Like, I'm not this... Yeah, notorious crook that's just gone bad or been caught for corruption. I, the things that I was charged with was why I was working on the William Tyrrell investigation. Surely it would make sense that I do a formal handover to the person taking yeah. that. I see you smirking yeah. and like you, ju I roll my eyes. Like it just it seems ridiculous that uh, I wasn't allowed to do that. It seems like they're punishing the case more than you in that one yeah 100 percent, and that that's a good way of looking at it. i thought the priority should always be william now 
I need to put it on on record. I don't I don't hate the police in any way. I I loved my thirty four years in the police. I've I've got no regrets and I one hundred percent support. If I could help the police on any investigation now, despite the fact certain senior police you know turned on me and uh, I lost my career over it, I would still help help the police out. That's that's you know the the position I I hold. But surely, if I could help the William Tyrrell investigation, which I could by doing a proper formal handover, it would have been in the interests of everyone that that's done. Recently, um, when I say recently, before um, Christmas last year, there was a lot of uh, public um, stuff released in, in the media where senior police announced that they've got a breakthrough in the investigation and that they were researching the area around Kendall. And it was done very dramatically, like, we have a breakthrough, we know who's done it, and they nominated, uh, or not by name, but by inference, one suspect. They said they've got one suspect and we expect to have answers by the end of the week. Mm. The public are sitting there going, wow, you know, this is, they must have a breakthrough. I'm sitting there thinking something's a little bit strange here, but I've been off the investigation for uh, for three years, so it's not my position to comment on it. But then a day or two after that announcement, then um, the commissioner came out and publicly criticised the investigation that I led. And uh, so on that basis, I, I felt compelled to at least point out a couple of, couple of home truths, and uh, which I did. And I, I wouldn't be... Even when I left the William Tyrrell investigation and the dramatic circumstances I did, I was never critical of the police invest, investigation or what was being done because, it, yeah the importance should be William. But I was sort of gobsmacked that uh, the most senior police officer in the state would come out and publicly criticise an investigation, a current investigation. I haven't seen that done before, and I haven't seen it nominated as only one person in an investigation of of this nature. And uh, my position now, I've said what I I needed to say publicly in defence of not just myself, because there's a lot of people working on the investigation, and I know those people would be finding it offensive too, that uh, where the commissioner is saying that we're wasting our time. And to me, that showed a complete lack of understanding of what the homicide investigation is all about. And uh, yeah, it was it was a very disappointing uh, disappointing thing. But I think now you've come out and said all these things, like the police have announced mm. we've got a breakthrough and all this. And yeah, there's one particular person that's been really hung out to dry uh, in this in this matter. And I, I've offered my opinions on my thoughts on the person. That person was eliminated at the time the investigation was handed over to me. I eliminated that person again during the course of my investigation. I don't know what they've got three years after I've left the investigation. But trial by media is not not a good thing. And I now work in the media, so I'm in a fortunate position to see it both sides. From, from, from both sides. And I feel really uncomfortable with what's happened, that uh, I've never seen a search conducted where the media have been given so much access to every single thing that went on. When I was conducting searches, it's media over there, but they seem to be allowed in and uh, here's a piece of... Uh, red material that's clearly not from a Spider-Man suit, but they allow the cameras in and uh, that's the lead story. And uh, I was a little bit disappointed in the way that the media covered it at, at the time. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't think there's one... Um, and I, I, I also need to say this, because I don't want to come across as just completely negative. 
I don't think there's anyone in the New South Wales Police that doesn't want to solve solve this yeah. crime. And I'm sure the people working on the investigation are working working hard on the crime. But uh, the focus should be on the be on finding out what happened to William. And I think there comes a point in time it's put up or shut up. Now the matter's still before the coroner, but it's been before the coroner for a number of years. With all this information that's been leaked and released to the media, well, someone needs to front it and answer questions because. I know when I was leading the investigation, I'd present myself and answer questions. If the public or the media had questions, I would answer those questions. But I, I haven't seen this in in uh, the current uh, phase of the William Tyrrell investigation. And it feels as though this is a typically even more sensitive case because of the legal around the names of the family yeah. as well. So yeah. alluding to maybe you could explain that a little bit better, but. That this this is because um, certain when there's a child involved, uh, names are um, uh, suppressed, yep. which is sensible because the the priority should be uh, looking after the child. But the way this information has got out to the the media, it's pretty well saying this is a person we suspect, mm. but we can't name this person because of a, a legal situation. It's come out, it's known now that uh, William was a foster child and that was something in the early stage of the investigation that um, mystified the public a little bit, I think, because the um, parents couldn't come out and, and say, show their faces or, or names because they couldn't be identified. And I think that became problematic and uh, I, I think, not with the benefit of hindsight, this would be my thoughts right from the start and... Uh, that they should have been allowed to speak. I yep. think it would have been in, in everyone's interest to, to cover it. But look, the the sad thing about William Tyrrell, and you know, it's funny, you, you asked me about it and we're talking about how, how it impacted on me and the problems with the police. It should come back to the focus. A yep. three-year-old kid has, has disappeared. And uh, yeah, I know the impact it's had on the foster parents. I know the impact it's had on the biological parents and it's heavy. Like it, it, it is hard and they deserve and should get answers and uh, I'm hoping with all the, the talk that the, has been out there with the, the police that they will get answers but uh, the pressure's on. They should, you know, when they've come out and said stuff like that, I've never said anything like that when I was running an investigation where you, you really put yourself out there, now it's, it's time to deliver. You speak about these cases and we took it the Barrowville and, and the William Tyrrell case yeah. which is obviously gut-wrenching type things that you know you, you live with forever as you said it mm. takes a part of you and and you we, we spoke about this earlier and i always talk a lot about this with with athletes because it's yeah. you know who you are as a as a detective versus who you are as a person yeah. and trying to separate the two yeah i know you said that you know you you feel like you're, you're quite resilient and you can you can manage these things but yeah. there's got to be a time when it is hard to separate the two personalities like yeah. how, how did you do that throughout your career yeah Throughout uh, throughout my career, I my my balance was I'd I'd always train I'd I'd, I'd stay fit and uh, that helped and I, I wasn't this fitness fanatic it was just every day I would train I, I would train each police station if I, I was working a murder investigation I'd find out where the police boys club is and go and go and train and you know give myself a, an hour to clear clear my head and I did that for the majority of my career and I, I think that uh, that helped. This is this is how it worked with me. I didn't socialise with a lot of police outside of work. I so socialised with people that yeah 
knew me before I was a cop, the old friends that can take the piss out of you so you can't get caught up in your own own importance. You know, when uh, I'm working on a case, uh, like 10 years, my mates will go, geez, you take a long time to solve a case. And yeah, <laughs> that, that, they, they bring you back. I also, um, I did a lot of martial arts and... Uh, that's uh, and and boxing, kickboxing, and that, and that's always when you're stressed. It's amazing if you step into a ring and you're getting kicked in the head or punched in the head. You're not really worried about what's happened at work, mm. so you focus focus there. Um, and I also, and I, I didn't know why I was drawn to it very early in my policing career. Um, meditation, and I would do um, qigong, and that came through doing kung fu. And I, I sort of, I could see these blokes and uh, and women. I'm thinking, how the hell do they do all this? And uh, one Sifu I was training under said, yeah, you're very good. You, you train hard training. And you probably know this as a, a professional uh, sportsman. I was so fit. I was doing all the hard training, but I walked past someone with a cold and I'd, I'd yeah, get, I, I was sick. I was fit, but I'd get sick yep. because I, I just wasn't balancing the hard and soft training. And uh, he suggested that uh, I need to do soft training. That led me to uh, Qigong. And if people don't know uh, yeah, Qigong, uh, it's spelt, uh, or one of the ways it's spelt is Q-I-G-O-N-G. It's a uh, Chinese, think Tai Chi. It's, it's like moody, moving meditation. So it's about the breathing exercise and stretching and, uh, and different things. So I got into that and that sort of took me on a path, meditation, yoga. And I, I've been doing that uh, my yeah, for the past 25, 30 years. And what, I, what I've found with um, meditation, and sometimes I've got uh, at, at different stages in my life, I got very heavily into it, but I realised I was making the mistake, the same mistake I made with my hard training that, okay, I've got to run 5Ks, I've got to do this, I've got to do some weights, blah, blah, whatever. Okay, I've got to do my 20 minutes meditation because I've got to rest. And blah, <laughs> yeah, and yep. it just became, and I realized this is ridiculous. I'm causing myself stress because I'm, I haven't done my you meditation try, yeah. to um, yeah, de-stress. Um, so what I've done, the way I use it now is that it's a tool that I have that uh, if, I'm, if I'm stressed, and sometimes when you come from um, a work environment, like policing, if you're at a murder scene or an operation, it's bang, 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 and you come home, and I know I'm out of step with everyone when you know you go to a barbecue or you know out for dinner or whatever, and you're operating at a different pace to everyone else. So, what uh, qigong and meditation allowed for me was to take a step back and uh, just you know center myself, if that makes sense. And it's been. I, I didn't realise why I was drawn to it so much, but when uh, this, you know, my public downfall in policing, that was very painful, personally. It was, it was, it was painful. Like, the weekend before um, uh, I was, you know, taken off, offline in the police, I'd been, uh, I'd, I'd gone up to um, Tamworth, flown up to Tamworth. There was two police officers that had been shot. That was on the, on the weekend. Came back to uh, Sydney, and then there was a murder at Newcastle. I went up there, and I was overseeing that. Tuesday afternoon, I'm served with papers, cautioned, had my gun taken off me, access to the computers, and the police car taken off me, and sat sat in the room for the next next three months. So it was dramatic. And then, after being told I definitely wouldn't be charged, I was charged, and I've I've, I've said I already said to him, look, the organisation doesn't want me. I'll I'll leave. And uh, but I'll be a positive advocate for the cops, and there's plenty of things I can do out, outside of policing. Homicide was my passion, but I can do other stuff. 
But when it played out so publicly and the information was being released to the media, and it can only come from police, before I was charged, I phoned professional standards and said, well, come and get me, I'm at, at home. And that was at 8.30, by quarter to nine or whatever, or, or you know, 15, 20 minutes later. It was the lead story on all the news. Mm. Like, how did, how did that get released? That was raised at my hearing, and there had been no investigation how that information got released. And I had so many journalists contact me and say, we've been told this, we've been told that, by police. And I'm thinking how disgraceful that is. Mm. So my whole world crumbled. And uh, probably my my lowest point was, yeah, after I'd been charged, it was just the humiliation of being charged. You know, it, it's I'd been a cop, and here I am on the other side of the other side of the ledger. And I didn't have any work to do. Like, and I talked about the the weekend before because that's how I was the homicide detective. I was a homicide detective. That's what I did. Yeah, that was my life. That was my passion. That was just taken away. So. I liken it to, say, your football career. If you're at the top of your game and then someone just tapped you on the shoulder and said, you are never playing another game of football, you go, what the hell? And it, it rattles you. I was fortunate that um, I had a lot of friends that are smarter than me that uh, uh, and people that you know, I hadn't spoken to for ages reached out and people that I respect and just said, because they know my nature of fight or flight, I tend to fight, and they could see me just you know, arcing up and making this a really ugly battle. And they said, don't, just take a step back and your best form of revenge is getting on with your, your life outside of that. And I think the lowest point, I was sitting on my lounge at home. It was about, and that's right, when it first started, I thought, okay, well, I've got more time to train, I'll train. But then I, I lost the uh, lost the interest in training. I wasn't meditating. I went, um, actually, after they uh, took me offline, I took um, two weeks off and went over to a, a yoga retreat over in uh, over in Bali. And it was up in the hills of Bali, and uh, I went there. And uh, I don't think I think I probably wrecked the yoga camp for everyone because <laughs> I'm sitting there, sitting there, and I wasn't very zen. I was I just had so much anger, but I knew I had to go there. And it was a real old school, and you'd be sitting in uncomfortable positions meditating for a long time. But it was good for me. It, it sort of just took me away from that that uh, that world. But when I got back, and I, I think the lowest point when I felt felt like I was broken. I had to wake up to myself. I was sitting on the lounge. I was in my underwear at 11 o'clock in the morning. I hadn't trained, hadn't done anything, and just sitting there. And go, And I looked at myself and gone, you you got you to gotta do something for your own mental well-being, your physical well-being and all that. And from that point in time, I thought, stuff it. Okay, I'll make a go of what my life can be after. And with that positive attitude, and I had one good friend say to me, look, Gary, no one wants someone that's going to whinge. Yeah. If you want to, you know, if you're going to work in the media, because that's where all the offers are, are coming, it's got to be a positive story. You, like, you could have a whinge about what happened to you, and you've got one time to tell it, and everyone will be sick of it. And that's, you know, he was so right. And uh, so I just thought, okay. And I was fortunate. I was offered opportunities with um, uh, the um, News news Corp, Sunday Telegraph, and writing, and uh that was terrifying. Like the first article I wrote mm. for the Sunday Telegraph, it was like doing a uni assignment and uh, the whole state's going to read it. And I wish I paid more attention at school in English. because, <laughs> And it was only a small article, but it took me forever to write. And uh, I thought, okay, and I, I've sent it off. And uh, a, a person who's been a really good uh, mentor for me, Claire Harvey, I sent it, uh, sent the article to her. And I just got a response back going, 
oh good uh, oh, no I've got the I've got the article I'm thinking oh well, that's really positive and then I was catching the uh, train into work and I'm thinking oh I'm an idiot I can't write um yeah this is going to be embarrassing but she in fact liked the article and uh, helped me a, a developing a writing style so I've I've enjoyed that and then with the podcasts the podcasts have been great like I, I've really enjoyed doing the podcast that uh, started off just interviewing police but now I'm interviewing you know other people as we talked about and uh, I'm I'm enjoying it but uh, I, and I've just finished uh, uh, doing some work with 60 Minutes as well so uh, and writing a book and all these things have come to me because of what happened which I thought was my lowest point mm. in my life what happened to me in the cops and it's just changed my life completely and I think it's all about attitude like I, I could have been I've I, could have been bitter and twisted and I've gone nah look maybe this is a good thing and it probably yeah I won't say this publicly even though I'm talking on the <laughs> podcast it's probably the best thing that happened right. to me because if I if I stayed in the cops I would have died in that job because there would always be another another case uh, to work on but I do regret leaving cases there was cases that I, I wanted to finish and I regret that um I don't have the opportunity to pass on the expertise. I, I had the expertise because there wasn't one day that uh, I turned up at work, I didn't learn something, and I still had the energy. And that's a good combination when you've got the energy and the experience, and that's where I was at when my career was taken away. But uh, I'm, I'm enjoying uh, enjoying life, and, uh, yeah, for the people that, um, yeah, and there were people that deliberately brought me down. This is my form of revenge. Mm. Um, I'm saying I'm, I'm living a good life. I'm enjoying myself. And uh, I've just uh, finished a uh, tour around the country doing a live stage show. And if anyone told me I was going to be um, you know, performing, and I think that's what you do. I, I was calling the dressing room the change room because I wasn't, <laughs> I was so out of my depth. But I, I've been doing this show with uh, called I Catch Killers Live with my friend Rob Carlton, who's a professional actor, and he's a, he's a really good mate. And before we walked out to a packed Enmore Theatre on a Saturday night, he's in the dressing room, as distinct from a change room, that you call them dressing rooms in the theatre world, and he's doing voice practising and you know, <laughs> warming, warming up. I didn't know what to do, so I started shadow boxing just to get rid of the adrenaline. It, it was a bizarre experience. <laughs> but I, I, I laugh at myself in the things that the doors that have opened up because of what was a, what was a bad experience. But I, I think... And yeah, we talked about uh, Caleb uh, Baker and and other people, but uh, yeah, sometimes the things that almost destroy you are the things that make you. And, if you uh, react to it well, yeah. Well, that's that's a good point, isn't it? Because yeah, that's that's probably what I respect and love about your story the most. And when I say your story, it's probably that crucible moment, not so much the all the work you've done in the police, which is incredible yeah. in itself, which is something different. But that crucible moment of people trying to chop you down the whole time you're fighting against it they're maybe looking like they've got their way by getting you out yeah and you go let's not be bitter let's be better yeah and in a way as you said you've repaid that um that faith in yourself to then go bigger and better in your next career yeah it's a bit it's the best form of revenge as you said yeah it, it is and what it's it's invigorate I, I like to challenge myself and like i'm doing things that are so far out of my comfort comfort zone i don't know if you experience it when you, you're doing the podcast you're probably thinking i'm a footballer what am i doing sitting here with a microphone in front of me and uh, i was just i i was nervous before i'd, I'd start and uh, and different things but by challenging yourself taking yourself out of your comfort zone and uh yeah like that's like doing the live stage show i'm saying 
before I walked out to that first show, I'm there thinking, why have I done this to myself? Mm. And why have I put myself in this position? But now I've, I've got through it and we've enjoyed it and it's been fun and I, I'm glad I, glad I did. And you, you grow that little bit more. I love that. It's it's like when you, you know, I, I refer to when I was playing footy and, and when you're in the police force, you continually pushing yourself yeah. and it's not so much you're pushing yourself but you're in a group that's pushing you and you're forcing yeah. you to do new things but yeah. when you you leave that world the onus is on you yeah and if you stay comfortable yeah nothing happens so yeah like you've got to get comfortable being uncomfortable and that was yeah. probably where i got to you know with my own career i used to do all these massive training camps yeah. and i was the fittest i've ever been and yeah two years later i'm not doing anything and i was like yeah. Fuck, i need to I went on this hiking camp. I hate hiking. Yeah. yeah. Hated it. Yeah. Hate being away, but I knew that I'm only going to get better if I do things that I don't like doing. Yeah. I, 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 it's interesting you say that because that, that's how I, I felt too, that uh, you can just sit in your comfort zone and then, and I always like to think my best days are ahead of me. Mm. Like, and I, I see friend, friends and people choose different ways to live their life, but I never want to be my most exciting time in my life was 10 years ago. And yeah, I, I think for someone like you, like it must be hard being a footballer. You've got, it's everyone's dream. Like I don't think there's anyone that wouldn't, yeah, run out to a packed stadium and, uh, you know, playing, hanging out with a group of like-minded people. It'd be fantastic. It must be hard to leave, leave that. And uh, what what's for life after now? Ooh, and yeah. you, you see, yeah, sportsmen that uh, leave and, that was the highlight of their life and you feel sorry for them. That that was my biggest fear. And I think maybe for yourself, similar, when you yeah. leave something that you love so much, you think, is my life going to be shit from yeah. now on? And that was my biggest thing that I ever left going, this, as much as I've loved this, I do not want this to be the highlight of my life. And sitting in a pub one day going, I remember when I used to do that, you know, yeah. that was that was awesome. Yeah. Um, I wanted my life to just be like on a trajectory. And that's something that I, you know, I've really drawn inspiration from what you've been able to do with, yeah. with your career. Yeah, well, it, and it's because it is is confronting when you leave an environment that you've known you've known and respected. And I, I've been fortunate enough some of the articles and and with uh, ex-military guys and uh, and different podcasts I've, I've done, where and it was a group called uh, Swiss Eight, and they got a podcast out, and uh, they're one of the ones that I first wrote an article about, and it's ex-combat veterans and how they're coping after they've left the uh, left the army. And what they were talking about, they've lost their tribe. And that's a big part of the problems that people face. And I, I think it's very similar to footballers and police because police was it was a, a little, a little mm. world that uh, you operated on. So when I left it, I, I left my – I felt like my identity was left at the door you know, because I was yeah, the detective. Yeah, that's what – that was my persona. That's what people recognised me for or even, even my friends. You know, oh, he's a cop that that was all left behind so you, you do have to reinvent yourself but uh i yeah i i'm glad i've i've had the opportunity and it's made me realize policing is a small part of the world and there's a really big part out of it and one interesting thing that's really um where some of my passion is heading now is uh since i've left the uh, left the police i'm i'm looking at i'm still looking at crime but I'm looking at it from a different way. And I found so many people are doing some amazing stuff fighting crime, just as hard as I, I fought crime, but they're doing it in a different direction. They're steering kids on the on the right path when they're going off, off the rails or helping 
prisoners integrate back into society when they, they leave prison or making offenders um, come to terms with the ramifications of their offences. These guys, they don't get any kudos and they just sort of chip away, but, geez, they're doing some uh, some mm. good work. And I, I think they're probably making more uh, impact on crime than I ever could uh, as a cop. Like, I, I just, that was my case and I, I'd solve that. And uh, there's one um, in Sydney um, around Redfern, uh, Shane Phillips does Tribal Warrior. And uh, he gets kids from uh, the um, Redfern Aboriginal community boxing each morning. And I went along to a session session with them, and geez, it was impressive. You got all these kids. He makes everyone put in, like no one, no one's sitting on the sidelines or whatever. Mm-hmm. Everyone gets in, and you rotate, so you you're meeting a lot of people. And then at the end of uh, end of the session, he has your former circle, and uh, he's got uh, young fellas that yeah, you're a teenager, you don't want to talk in, in front of people, uh, talking about uh, what's important and respect and yeah, that awesome. type type of stuff. And I I just I'm I'm in awe of of that. And uh, there was a, I, I've had him on on my podcast, uh, but there, that Shane Phillips is his name. But uh, another person, Ken Marslew, whose son was killed um, in an armed robbery, uh, shot um, at the Pizza Hut. Um, he was working at the Pizza Hut, eighteen year old, and was shot. And Ken's been doing a lot of work with prisoners since that yeah. time, going into prisons and saying, you know, you got to own your shit, and this is the impact. And uh, People, people like that, I, I've, I'm finding amazing. Yeah, I've got to give a shout out to the Bridge Project. Um, is a is a. I'm not sure if they're functioning up in Sydney, but in Victoria, they yeah. work with um, prisoners when they leave prison and yeah. get them into jobs. Yeah. Um, through who I, that's how I sort of got into this, you know, as an interest. Oh, right. Through yeah that organisation when I was playing footy, it was one of the ones that yeah. we used to go and every player was sort of. Um, you know, encouraged to join a, an organisation and volunteer some time. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it was one of the things that I really enjoyed. I went into, like, Ravenhall one day and walked in. I was just like, what this <laughs> the fuck is going yeah. on? Yeah. Like, this is so scary, you know, like these prisoners. Oh, yeah. But I walked in the room and they were nervous. Yeah, it's like, funny, isn't it? It's... What? Like, this was, it was just random. Not because of my stature, obviously. Yeah, I think it was yeah. just more, like, because it was in a, it was in a vulnerable setting yeah. where they were going to be learning and it wasn't something that they'd, done before previously yeah yeah Ch- challenging challenging them about their life mm. and the way they're living their life there was a, a, a another um person that's doing some good stuff simon fennick he he did some time inside yeah uh got caught up in the, the drugs and you know lost everything because of uh, his drug addiction but when he came out of prison fruit to work where he's getting prisoners after they come out employing them for six months just so they get the skills they get a cv and and different things to to help them but uh yeah and see if i stayed in the cops i wouldn't have had the opportunity to speak to these people and even sitting down um i was one of um it was one of the most high profile um uh gangsters in uh, in sydney uh graham henry it was uh nettie smith and roger rogers and the whole blue murder story um i've recently done a podcast with him and it's interesting sitting down and uh yeah speaking to someone that yeah we're meant to be mortal enemies and getting a bit of an understanding Mm. about uh yeah what's going on and uh i was reading his reading his book and it's funny like we grew up in the same area we know we share the same 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 people we've got mates um um, in common and it's it's quite uh quite interesting as much as today has been a chat about your career and, and learning so much about the the world that a lot of people don't know. Yeah. I think there's a message in here that I've really enjoyed and loved and it's about purpose after finding something else in your life. Yeah. And something that's probably to give you a bit of context in my career too is 
we probably weren't we didn't make the decision we were yeah. forced to make the decision I, I was delisted from yeah. the AFL sacked yeah. basically yeah. Um, not because I did anything wrong just didn't do anything um, mm. well enough so mm. I just wasn't good enough to play footy anymore yeah. and out of that crucible moment or being forced to do something different you find another passion in your life yeah which is incredible but what is really hard is when you're not forced and you're in a job like you said in the police force and you probably would have stayed there you know if i had got another contract i would have stayed playing footy it's it's easy but it's a message that i always try to send to people is how exciting if you can take that leap of faith yeah and find something totally different that you never knew that you could do yeah, that's that's a, an interesting uh, way of looking at it, and it's a message to a lot of people. Because I think one of the saddest things that I, I see in life is where people are not happy in their job, mm. and eighty uh, percent of what you do, really. And yeah, and how many people say that uh, they're not happy in their job? And I, I think sometimes you just got to go for it, and it's not easy, and it's scary. And uh, I think of all all the things that I, I've achieved. And nothing that I've achieved that I'm, a proud, that I'm proud of has come just through sheer luck. It's been, I'm not, I'm not skilled or talented in any way. It's effort. Like I, I put in effort and that gets me across, across the line. And uh, that's the thing that um, I've always based on. If, if you put the effort in, by the time you turn up, you, you're ready to go. And if you fail, and you do fail, I've failed at a lot of things. But it's not because I didn't try. I, I gave it my best shot and failed. And I, I can live with that. I, I got no problems with failing. And sometimes failing is the best thing because it, it teaches you more more about yourself. Playing football, if you keep winning, there's not a lot. You don't checks or balances and, mm. and gradually it'll run out. But you learn more when you get your ass kicked on the on the football field or in the boxing yeah. ring than you, than you do if you, if you just run over the top of people. Oh, I'd take my career over a 300-game, two-premiership play because not the fact that those accolades yeah. are great, but when you have the adversity of being dropped and good and bad and sacked and yeah. you're at the top of your game and the bottom of your game, you learn so much more about what sets you up for later in life. Yeah. And I find yeah. that, um, you know, that transition for me has been made a lot easier because I didn't come out of football knowing, uh, thinking things were going to be easy. Yeah. Like I knew things were going to be hard and had that perspective, which is hard for, you know, cops or... Yeah. Uh, you know, army veterans or anyone that's had a not an easier um, journey, but it's very hard to transi- uh, transition if you haven't yeah. you know, gone up and down and had some adversity. I think that ad- adversity, and I, I look at um, yeah, in policing now that uh, you know to get into the homicide. When when I got into homicide, it was a really hard path. You you had to get tapped on the shoulder to come into plain clothes, and you you know. You became a detective. You went to major crime. Like I worked in the armed hold-up squad. I worked in uh, organised crime before I got to homicide, and it was a real hard path to get there. And I'm seeing the latter part of my career. I'm not sure how it is now, but it became too easy to get into homicide, yep. so people didn't appreciate it. By the time I got there, I was it was the proudest moment of my life. I am now a homicide detective, and I love the fact that I, I had to work hard to to get there. And yeah, I was in the uh, in the police before the Royal Commission in New South Wales, and each state's had those you know the corruption things. And I, I worked with some uh, people. My first partner in as a local detective. So when I'm just a literally kid in the detective's office, and uh, he was he was um, soliciting bribes from the local brothel when I, I was working with him. I, I thought I'm watching his yeah he seemed to have uh, this interest in this um this brothel and i thought he was just one of these weird cops that fascinated fascinated by that but he was soliciting bribes now i had to navigate my way through that 
And I was I wasn't compromised at all, but when I see people, you know, talk about, oh, it's hard with the HR issues and all that in the police, you try and work with some uh, some guys like that and keep your integrity yeah. and uh, and how hard that was. But because he's he's learned that off someone else. Yeah, yeah. But that made me a, a better cop seeing that side of the world and then seeing the other side of it. And I, I had to uh, had to hold my integrity and make sure. What do you what do you do in those situations with that guy? With well, he ended up uh, he ended up doing a couple of years in in jail. Wow. But my position was, I just I think he he knew a, a strong enough in character yeah. not to not to buy into it. So he didn't expose it to me. Yeah. He did it. I I had my suspicions uh, that uh, yeah, I as I said, I thought it was just off on some weird weird tangent. He was strange, but he never compromised me. And I I think that's because I'd presented enough. That, oh, that you do that, and he would have had no idea how I'd react. I might have throttled him, knocked him out, or you know, given him up. I don't know, but uh, I managed to get my way through that. And yeah, we talked at the start about my upbringing and some of my friends and all that. And I worked in some funny areas before I joined joined the police, and I think it served me well because I, I had the instinct to just, I'll just stay away a little bit. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not going to. Whereas I went in there completely naive, I, I probably could have got dragged into what he was doing. And mm. I saw a couple of uh, police uh, that got dragged into corruption because they probably didn't have the strength of character. And they weren't bad people, but they were put in an environment that they didn't know how to stand up for themselves. And that, that sort of saddens, saddens me. But, uh, yeah. Unbelievable. Hey, Gary, I've taken up so much of your time today. I cannot thank you. I think we're going to do a part two um, in, in another episode for sure. But you've done so much in your career. It's an absolute honour to sit down with you. So um, you know, proud to just be sitting with you, mate. It's, it's, it honestly is a, a big idol for me and what you've been able to do in your police work but now in your, in your podcasting second half of your life. What's next for you? I where I where I'm heading heading at the moment. I'm I'm still yeah learning as podcasts. Um, I'm writing a second book, which is after the first book, um, I Catch Killers. It was uh, very successful. Um, a second book's on the table, and I swore blind I would never do a second <laughs> book after the first book because. But I, I'm in the throes of doing that. Um, I've yeah doing doing lots of things that. And each thing's challenging me. So I just literally finished this um, tour around the country as a live stage show. Never thought I'd do that. Um, I'm doing all sorts of things, and each day is an adventure for me. And mm-hmm. the more I, uh, it's funny, the more you throw yourself in with an open mind, it's people are approaching me to do this and do that. And whereas I would say no, now I'm going yeah. And the funny thing is, now that I'm not in the in the cops, when people approach me, I'd, I'd be thinking well i've just got to get approval and yeah yeah, yeah. like coming on your podcast if i was still in the police i'd have to do a report and then i'd have to get signed off on and i'd have to explain (laughs) this and that and now i can just go oh yeah i'll go on dylan's podcast and so i've got ownership in it now look i'm really enjoying it i'm sure i'll crash and burn in in some some area but i'm having fun trying and uh, I, i i don't think i'm harming anyone and i'm i'm trying to do some good stuff and uh, I'm enjoying my life. No, you're definitely not. You're still bringing uh, light to some very important important topics. And yeah, can't thank you enough for your time today. We'll have all the links in the show notes of your website, your book, your podcast. Can't uh, stress how much you should all check that out. Unbelievable show. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Dylan. Cheers, mate. 
If that wasn't enough for you and you want even more, you're in luck. Dylan Friends is now on Patreon. Dylan Best Friends. If you'd like to learn more, you can head to patreon.com forward slash Dylan Friends or you can head to the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening to the Dylan Friends podcast. If you like the show, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, leave a review or even share with your friends. The show is produced by myself and Sam Bonza. Damon Jackman from Creative Edge Films is responsible for audio and visual production. The show is recorded at the Dylan Friends Studio in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to get in touch or suggest a guest or advertise with the Dylan Friends podcast, please email us at inquiries at dylanfriends.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. Oh, 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 oh